Well, um, my name is Rachel Wortman. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, and um, we're in the middle, well, not in the middle, we're in the second week of this new series we're doing called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And so I want to tell you, you know, when you think about who a person is, there's usually two sides of a person for the most part, right? And of course, with God, there's many, many sides to God. And so we've been exploring a lot of the side of God that is very peaceful and loving and gracious, and uh, that's not the side we're exploring today. So I just want to give you a disclaimer. I always joke about this is the time when the captain turns on the fasten your seatbelt lights, and if you have some problems, the oxygen mask will drop from above you. No, you're not going to have any problems, but I just want to say up front, this is going to be a different type of a message than we typically preach, and I wrestled over this. Grant can tell you yesterday, I was like, do you want to preach? Because I'm not so sure this is what I want to talk about, because I don't want to talk about it, but I feel very challenged and um, impressed upon by the Lord that this is what he wants me to share, so now that I've gotten that out of the way, here we go. Uh, when we talk about the gospel of the kingdom, this series is not designed to be like step one, step two, step three. It's designed to be a walk around. So we're essentially walking around this concept and looking at it from many different angles. And our heart is that by the end, you will have a better picture of what the kingdom of God really looks like. But you know, the gospel that Jesus preached was not the gospel of salvation, now, I'm not trying to offend you, but that's just what it was. And one of the reasons is because there was no gospel of salvation at that point because the cross had not happened, right? So that's one of the main reasons why Jesus could not offer salvation until he died and rose from the grave. But essentially what he was doing was preaching not the gospel of you need to get saved, but the gospel of what God wants to do on the earth. Now, let me be super clear. You cannot fulfill and bring the kingdom of God if you are not saved. Let's just blanket that down here right now. Salvation is the most important thing you can do with your life. But what I feel like the Lord was reminding me of is I'm not talking to a room of people who are trying to decide if they want to be saved. This message doesn't apply in that context. This is a message that applies to people who are saying, I have crossed that threshold in my life. So if you have not done that, today's your day. Don't leave without doing that. But I'm pretty sure most of us, if not all of us in here, have already done that. Salvation is what gets you into the house of God. It's not the entirety of the house of God. It's the threshold. You can't be in it without salvation. And let me just be frank, which I think you guys all agree with me on this. You cannot get to God apart from Jesus. And you cannot get to God with Jesus and someone else. It is only Jesus. That's the way that he designed it to be. But that's how you get to God. And that's step one. Right? That's step one. Now, unless you die on the day that you got saved, there's a whole thing the Lord wants you to do. And in fact, he spent three, his three years of ministry describing what the kingdom of God was like so that we could find our place in that. Amen? So I want to just take a little bit of a closer look. Last week, Grant kind of did an overview. Today, we're going to do a slightly more closer look and then continue to explore that in the coming weeks. But I think before we even say, here's what the kingdom of God is, what I need you guys to recognize is that there is a difference between the kingdom of God and the American church culture. Okay? I know you guys get that because you're here at this place. But here's the thing. There is a difference between what the kingdom of God is and American church culture. There's a difference between the kingdom of God and the Bush culture in Africa church, right? God designed the kingdom to come into your cultural setting and be applied no matter where you are in the world. So that's not to say that American church culture is terrible. It's not to say that it's just a horrible thing you shouldn't be aware of. It's to say, what is God wanting to do in the midst of it? Okay, so I think 
when we read the Gospels and we look at Jesus moving through Jerusalem, having these conversations with Pharisees, I almost think Jerusalem is similar to the Bible Belt that we have today. Jerusalem at that point, similar culture as what we have today. So what I'm going to do with this message is I'm just going to preach it to who you are in the room today. Is that fair? Sometimes we preach messages that can be listened to on the podcast. We have people listening to our podcast from all over the place, and sometimes I'm aware of that. But today, this is about if you live in Oklahoma City metro area, this is for you. This won't make sense if you live in Seattle or somewhere else where there's not a church every 10 feet. This message is for those of us that can walk 10 feet. Or I mean, I don't even know if I asked you in this room how many churches have you been a part of in your lifetime. It's going to be more than a few because there's just so many, right? And I'm not dogging on that or saying that's wrong. I'm just saying we need to begin to open our eyes to what is American church culture and what is the kingdom of God. In a lot of ways, they overlap and they're the same. And in a lot of ways, they're not. I picture Jesus walking into Oklahoma City today and having some of the same conversations with our church leaders, with our church culture, as he did with the Pharisees at that time. Because the structure of religion had been created in Jerusalem. Let's put it this way. When Moses got the Ten Commandments from God, how many were there? Ten. I gave you a hint, right? Not a trick question. There were ten. By the time Jesus was walking on the earth, there were over 400 laws to follow. That's a lot more than 10. Now, to be fair, some of those God did give, but some of them the religious leaders had created to govern the people in the name of God when it was never really in the name of God. Okay? i just going to go out on a limb here and say, I think that might be happening today. Things like, uh, uh, I'll just call it out because we're just being in the room, we're being family today. Things like what kind of clothes you wear and how that me- what that means about your status in God. Now, we should be you know, paying attention to our clothes we wear, but if you're telling somebody you cannot get into heaven if you wear pants, yeah. something's wrong with that picture, right? Jesus is what you need to get into heaven. It's not Jesus plus what you tithe. It's not Jesus plus the words you say. It's not Jesus plus the fact that you do or don't read your Bible every day. It is salvation in Jesus alone. You guys tracking with me? So if we're paying attention to what is American church culture or even Oklahoma church culture, I think it's important for us to begin to at least be able to identify what's that and what's the kingdom of God. Now, the reason why I say this is not to harp on any other churches or our own, because you guys know my story. You know that I am a huge proponent of the body of Christ at large. I wholeheartedly believe it is not one church. It's all the churches together. But I think it's important for us to recognize at times, to be able to just call out and say, well, that's something that works because we're Americans. That's not necessarily how the kingdom of God works. Okay? All right. Got that out of the way. What I want to do today is I want to talk about three different types of people that we see in the New Testament, and then we're going to dive into one of the parables that's really interesting that Jesus um, shared. And my intention with this is that I think what we have hidden cannot be dealt with. In other words, if you are not aware that you think something, then you can't grow. Does that make sense? So it's not just sin. Sometimes it's just our awareness of what we think and believe. So my intention today is to to show you guys these three different categories of people, and then I want you to be thinking, which one of these am I? Which one do I fit in? Okay? It's not a trick question. There's no shame about whatever you pick. It's just being honest about, yeah, this is where I met. This is what I believe. So the first category that we see when Jesus does his ministry and when he's talking about the kingdom, he interacts with the first category, which today we're going to call the crowd. 
So there's a throng of people around Jesus, right? And so when Jesus is doing his ministry, he treats the crowd very differently than he treats other people that are close to him. Have you noticed this? The way he handles the crowd is he throws out these sort of fortune cookie statements. And they're designed to confront a thought and see what the person will do with it. It's not an intimate fellowship. It's a when he's standing in the Pharisees and, or when he's standing in the crowd and he just throws out, well, who is my mother and father? And it's like, well, that's kind of offensive. Your mom is standing right there, right? But he does it to see how are people going to respond, and he's sort of like poking the waters to see where they're at. The crowd are the people who are enamored by Jesus. They're fascinated by him only to the extent of their convenience, If it's going to inconvenience them, they probably are not going to be there. Picture the crowd like the people who typically come to church on Easter or Sunday morning. Or if there was a, you know, we don't really understand parades going through a town like they did when they lived much closer together. But picture like five cop cars driving down your street, you know. All the sirens are going, well, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to go out there and see what's going on. And you're going to watch until you have something better to do, right? I don't know about you, Grant and I used to live in the inner city parts of Waco. We had many a day that we sat on our front porch watching the cops do stuff with people. It was kind of fun. One of our buddies, he lived across the street from us. He was a drug dealer, and he needed Jesus, and we were trying, and he was young. And one particular day, I kid you not, there were, I think we counted, was it like 27 or 28 SWAT members surrounding his house, and he was in the attic. His name was Dallas. Is that right? No. What was his name? Something along those lines. We'll call him Dallas. And uh, he was, you could hear him from his attic. And they were going, come on out. And we were going, come on out. They're going to shoot you. And we're sitting there thinking, should we still be sitting here right now? You know, but we wanted, he eventually did come out. He went to jail, bless God. Uh, And, uh, you know, anyways, my point in saying that is when it's convenient to you, you go along with it. The crowd are the type of people where they don't want to miss out on what their friends are doing. That's why they go, not really because of how it pertains to them. Okay? Jesus interacted with the crowd. The crowd are children of God. It's not something that's like, oh, this is terrible. It's just a fact to say, is this me or not? The second category that we look at when Jesus is interacting with people is what we're going to call followers. Now, you can be a follower of Jesus and be in any of these categories, but for the sake of today, we're going to call them followers. And the followers are the ones that have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot still trying to figure out life. Okay, the followers are the ones that they actually would quite literally follow Jesus. They would go from one city to the next. They weren't just enamored with him. They found value in what he was teaching. They found value in applying it to their lives. So the followers, this is a good thing. Most of Jesus's ministry was funded by his followers. Well, pretty much all of it. But, you know, they were people who thought, wow, I like what you're doing. Let me give to you. So a follower is a good thing. But the follower, what happens with them is that when they come to the point where there's a cost, Oftentimes, that's when they back up. Today, a follower would be somebody that's like all about, let's just call social media, like all about following quite literally somebody on social media. I love it. I love it. I love it. Until you're like, oh, I didn't like that. And then you're just done. You tracking with me? What I think um, the way Jesus handled the followers is as opposed to the crowd. So the crowd, he throws out these things to confront to them. With the followers, he throws out an invitation. Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is enamored with God. He's sitting in this tree, and Jesus gives him an invitation. I'm going to eat at your house tonight, and he, and he gets into his life. But he doesn't stay in his life unless the follower says, I'm coming with you. You guys tracking with me? So picture it as one foot in two worlds. you got one foot going, I want to do this. I'm not really sure what this means. The other foot going, I have these responsibilities, and I don't know how to reconcile these two worlds. And then the third category is the disciples. 
Now, when I say disciples, I'm not actually just talking about the 12. In fact, when God called the 12, he actually called them apostles. So there were many more disciples than just the 12. The disciples are the ones who are saying, I don't care what it costs me or what it takes. I'm following after you because I know who you are. Because I don't care about the cost to myself. You are worth it. Disciples at that time in that culture, you guys may have heard this before, but they would actually leave and follow a rabbi. They would leave their home learning as much as they possibly could from the, from the rabbi. There were women and men disciples. Mary and Martha were disciples. There were other women that he had following him as well that were true disciples. Now, the way Jesus interacts with his disciples is totally different than with the followers or with the crowd. With the disciples, he kind of enjoys rebuking them, right? I read it, and I'm like, ooh, Jesus, <laughs> you got some, some real leniency in your relationships with your friends, you know? It's like Peter when he's telling Jesus, you know, that's not going to happen, and what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's not something he's going to throw out in the crowd. That's something he's saying straight to Peter, and what is he saying? He's saying, dude, you're partnering with your words with something that's not even God. Stop doing that. With Mary and Martha, Martha's a disciple. And so he's not rebuking her because he's mad at her. He's rebuking her saying, hey, you know better. Choose the better way here. You know, in fact, you invited me to your house and then you're just avoiding me. It's kind of what he's saying in that moment, right? Choose the better way. We can go through all the different disciples and we can find these moments where he's interacting with them on a very personal level. So one of the biggest differences between somebody who's a follower and somebody who is a disciple is your threshold of allowing the Lord to correct you in your life. In other words, it's saying, God, I'm going to let you poke holes in what I believe, and I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm, I'm going to call you, I'm going to tell you what I think, and then I'm not going to hang up the phone before you get to speak back to me, right? That's what a follower might do. That's for sure what the crowd would do. But a, a disciple says, I'm having a problem, Lord. I love this when you look at how Jesus handles the disciples when he's telling these parables, and he's throwing out these crazy things, and then it's the disciples at the end of the day that are going, I'm not going to sleep until you tell me what the heck you were talking about. I'm not going to be satisfied until I understand what you're saying. That's the difference between a disciple. The question I feel like the Lord has for us today is, which one are you? Which one are you? Because I'm just going to be really honest with you. The kingdom of God is at hand for those that are disciples. The kingdom of God is designed to be furthered by those that have said, yes, I'm going to be a disciple of you. When Jesus was giving the Great Commission, he was not saying, go and gather a big crowd. He didn't say, go in my name and gather a big following. No, he said what? Go and make disciples. Help people figure out how to count the cost and give themselves to me. That's what the Great Commission is all about. It was never about coming to church on a Sunday and checking the box to feel better about yourself. I can't even tell you how many friends that Grant and I have had over the course of our time in Oklahoma, which has been a decade now, how many friends of ours would literally say this phrase to us, and it's probably because they felt like they could be free with us, but they would say, you know, I picked this church because I just need to check the box. What? What? I remember one of them was a good friend of ours, and Grant literally goes, I don't even know how to respond to you right now. What are you talking about, right? And sometimes that's because we just don't, we got all these thoughts or a season of life or whatnot. But at the end of the day, if you're a disciple, then you're going to go after Jesus. You're going to partner with him. You're going to truly give him your life. Otherwise, you're a follower. And I don't say that to shame you to say, you know, oh, that's less. It's like, it's not a hierarchy system. It's just, where are you? Do you know what I mean? And you can't expect God, if you're in the crowd, you cannot expect God to do the same things for you that he will do for a disciple. 
Here's why. Because Hebrews tells us he rewards those who diligently seek him. Not just those who follow him on social media, but those who are actually after his heart. Those are the people who are getting the blessings of peace, joy, that living water that satisfies where you're not thirsting anymore. That comes from becoming a disciple. This is one of those moments where we have to look and say, what's kingdom culture and what's American church culture? Because I think one of the messages American church culture has said is you can just come to church and you can have all of that. It's not what the Bible says. It's from intimacy with God. It's from wanting to follow him. It's from counting the cost. I remember one day, I wasn't going to share this story, but I'm gonna, I'll just share it with you because, I mean, you know, I'm overly vulnerable with you all anyway, so why stop now? Um, this was about eight years ago, seven years ago, and um, I was in this season of life, probably nine months, where I was immersed in um, a particular gifting that I had never experienced before, and the experiences I was having were off the charts. I mean, like we were hearing audible voices like from the Lord, hearing things in the spirit. I was feeling things like we would go to pray for someone and I could feel oil dripping off of them. It was just the most bizarre thing. I would see angels doing things and then that exact thing would happen within 10 minutes. It was like blow your mind. And I remember thinking I could minister all day long if this is what it's like, you know? And I was so just, I don't know. I didn't ask for that. Let me just be really clear. I didn't ask for that at all. It just happened. About nine months and eight, nine months into this journey, I was spending time with the Lord, and he said to me, Rachel, this is the exact words, he said, I have imposed myself on you, and I have done that for as long as I'm going to. He said, at this point, you need to count the cost and decide, are you willing to follow me in this gifting and the price that comes with that? And it freaked me out because <laughs> when God says count the cost, I mean, it's serious, right? And I kind of, you guys know me, I kind of went into a bit of a tailspin internally of like, well, am I going to die? Is this, you know, what's going to happen? This sounds really, really bad. And I spent three months counting the cost. Like, I'm embarrassed to say that, but that's what happened. And one day I was talking to Grant about it and I was just going back and forth and he looked at me and he goes, Rachel, what are you doing? Say yes to God. And it was like, oh, you're right. You're right, what am I doing? Why am I trying to rationalize this as if there's another way, you know? And so I said, I went to the Lord and I said, okay, God, yes, I am willing to follow you. Like that, all of the gifting was gone. It's been six years. I've never experienced something like that again. Now, he's taught me to minister out of similar parts of that gifting. But I tell you that story because what the Lord was saying was, am I your prize? Is it the gifting? Is it the wow factor? Is it all these other things? Or is it me, myself? If I turn off all of these things in, my, in your life, are you still satisfied with me alone? I was freaked out. I went to people. I was like, what did I do? I did something wrong because I thought it wasn't going to change the gifting. It just was the Lord inviting me into something. And I got some counsel for some, from some really amazing people, and they just really encouraged me that this was what the Lord was doing, and he was teaching me and training me in other ways. And, and to be honest, at this point in my life, I can say to you, I don't care. Those stories will wow you. I could tell you them, you would be wowed. But at the end of the day, I don't care because who Jesus is to me is enough if I never have something fantastical coming out of my life. If I don't get to touch knees with somebody like Makobe just shared, you know, and see them be healed, that's fine because Jesus is enough, right? That's the difference between a disciple and someone who's just watching from an intellectual or a spectator level. The cost is issued to you, and then you get to choose what you're going to do with it. I will tell you, there is not one person who follows Jesus as a disciple in the Bible that did not have to step over a foolish line of faith. 
He uses the foolish things to shame the wise. It is his process. So if you're sitting here and you're going, I'm not a disciple, but I want to be, you need to expect the Lord to give you something to do that will be foolish to you. I don't know what it is. I'm not saying don't, I'm not saying run off a cliff. You know what I mean? But if the Lord is calling you to it, nine times out of 10, it defies your logic because he's testing you because he's offering an invitation and he wants you to see, he wants you to see that you think he's worth it. Here's the deal, guys. At the end of our life, we're all standing before God. We all are. And when we stand there before the Lord, you know that phrase, well done and good and faithful servant that we hear. You know, it dawned on me recently, that's not the entry code. God says, well done, good and faithful servant, if you have been a good and faithful servant. I don't enjoy saying this to you, just so you know. But it's true. There is a a correlation here that when we follow Jesus, there is an expectation that we do certain things, that we bear fruit. And the certain things are not a checklist that's universal. It's obedience to what he's asking you to do. Do you understand? That's one of the differences of American church and kingdom church is that I cannot tell you what that's going to be. I can tell you things that will be helpful, but it's Jesus plus nothing. Do you understand? It's You're not going to get into heaven because you read your Bible every day. That's just not what the Bible says. So we have to recognize when we start to glean something from a church culture, we have to recognize, okay, wait a second. Am I putting some pressure on myself that the Lord's not putting on me? But on the other hand, the Lord does put pressure on us when he's asking us to obey. So when you stand before the end of your life, you don't get to blame other people. I don't get to stand before the Lord and say, God, you you put me you know, in a home like this or in a marriage like this or with friends like this. And that's why I didn't. Because if that was true, then Jesus is not enough for you today. Do you understand that? If that was true, if we got to stand up there and blame, then he's not powerful enough to revolutionize your life. And we know that's not true. So when we're standing there before him, what I hope we all get to say is, God, I did everything I, I, that you asked me to, or at least I tried. Here's one of the things that I think happens. Sometimes I think we take the grace of God, and we've spent the last year talking about the grace of God and our place in him, and I, that is what we're supposed to do. But sometimes we take the grace of God and we give that to ourselves of permission to be apathetic and lazy. It's mama talking to you today, okay? Sometimes we take the grace of God and we say, well, Lord, it's no big deal. You're going to love me if I go and do this. It's no big deal. Guys, the grace of God is not permission for you to be lazy or to sin. It is to pick you up when you fall on your face because you were trying to say yes to the Lord. It's when you said, God, I will risk everything to you and you heard wrong. That's what the grace of God is for. Not to say, I can have this good life because I go to church and I don't do anything else with myself. In the same way, Paul tells us you're supposed to bear fruit. In fact, I think there's like 13-something verses that reference being a fruit bearer in the Bible, okay? But you're supposed to bear good fruit. But in that same vein, bearing good fruit can become striving. Do you see how everything is a balance, right? When we're focused on bearing fruit and obeying and getting something done in the kingdom, it can easily become striving or working or thinking I'm better than somebody else because look at everything I'm doing. And so I want you to think about the grace of God and the works of God as two legs of the same body. They walk in step. And when striving begins to come into you and your your works are starting to distort your mentality, the grace of God is right there to hold you. And when the grace of God makes you start feeling like it's okay to not do anything with your life or your salvation, I mean your faith, then the works come. Do you see what that means? It's two sides. I think that it's 
I think we want so badly for God to be one note. He's just not. Think about your parents right now. Your parents, whether they knew how to love you or not, they loved you. And then there were for sure days that they didn't look like they were loving you. <laughs> right? My kids, there's times where they come and they're like, you know, and I nurture them. And there's times where I'm like, you know what? You didn't do this and I asked you to do it. And it's not because I'm trying to confuse them. It's all from the place of love. You guys are good parents. Those of you guys that have kids, you understand that, right? So this is something that happened to me recently. And, um, and I want to share this with you guys. A couple weeks ago, I was spending time with the Lord. And then we're going to look at a couple scriptures. Um, I was spending time with the Lord. And, and God said to me, out of the blue, he goes, Rachel, I'm not actually concerned with your happiness. He said, I'm concerned with your effectiveness. And it was like, you know, not even a stab in the back. It was like out of the Lord right in the chest, you know. And I thought, okay. And you know when the Lord asks you a question, it makes you think. So then I had to start thinking, did I think you were concerned with my happiness? You know, was I, was I praying for things to make myself happy? I don't know. And, and I was coming to that place again of saying, Lord, I know this to be true. True happiness is found when I am in the will of God, when I am obeying you, when I'm doing what you ask me to do. So happiness is on his radar, but it's an American constitutional right to have the pursuit of happiness. It's not a kingdom of God right, right? If we look at how Jesus invites us to things, most of the time happiness is not the first thing, <laughs> It's like, go talk to that person, and you're sweating, and you're, like, clamming up, and you're like, I don't feel happy right now, Lord, you know? And he's like, I don't really care, but the happiness will come after you obey, and you feel my pleasure. And so I started talking to the Lord, and I said, God, is there anything I'm doing? I'm just being full disclosure. Is there anything I'm doing that's not effective? And he goes, bam, five things in an instant. You know, have those moments? It's like, because God is so multidimensional, he can tell you multiple things at the same time. So I'm frantically trying to write down these five things, and two of them were projects that he had asked me to do that I just hadn't, I'd been working on, but I hadn't taken them seriously. And the other three were things he had asked me to do daily, and I just hadn't really understood he really meant it. Anybody ever feel like that? So I said, Lord, full stop. I will rearrange my entire schedule I'll rearrange it all to make sure that I do these things. Because if this is what it takes to fulfill what you've asked me to do, then I'm in. Why? Because I said yes to you. Because I said, so many times I can't even count. I laid on my face, I knelt down, and I said, God, I'm yours. You can have your way in my life. I can't say that and then purposely not do the things he asked me to do. Paul talks about it as being a bondservant. A bondservant was somebody that wore like a gauge earring in their ear, and it was an intentional slavery. They gave themselves to be slaves. It wasn't the same as somebody, you know, making someone a slave. It was somebody saying, this has a benefit to me, so I'm giving myself typically for like seven years. And they would wear a sign on their ear so that everybody would know, I'm not my own anymore. I belong to this person. And Paul uses the phrase bondservant as an example of what it means to be a disciple, that I'm giving you full control over my life. So I don't have these scriptures up here because I want you to look at them in your own Bible. So if you have the Version app, you can look at this. We're going to look first at um, Luke 13, 6 through 9. And um, I'm going to read it out of the Amplified, but you can read it in whatever translation you want. This is the parable of the fig. And I do need to say, as you guys are looking this up, this parable was in direct connection to a question the, the Pharisees had asked Jesus. So the implication I'm going to say is a little bit loose, but I feel like this is what the Lord was breathing on. So I just want you to know from a theological standpoint, this is not the only implication of this verse. But we're going to look in verse 6. This is the parable of the fig tree. And he says, um, this is Jesus, and he said, Then he began telling them this parable. A certain man had a fig tree that, he had, that had been planted in his vineyard. Now stop right here and think for a second. A vineyard is where you plant grapes for wine. It's not where you plant fig trees. 
The vineyard was not a garden. It was a literal vineyard. What this means is that the, the, the owner of this field gave intentional space that could have been used for wine, which was more expensive, to a fig tree. What would be the implication? That the owner wanted figs, okay? In fact, a fig tree was a terrible thing, and they all would have known this when he told this story. A fig tree makes no sense to put in a vineyard because it's a tree. It has like a 25-foot diameter shade thing that's going to affect the grapes in that area. It's going to bring in birds. Okay, so are you tracking with why this is like something that would be offensive to the people or uh, cause them to question the people at that time? A certain man had a fig tree that had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the vineyard keeper, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and have found none. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground, depleting the soil and blocking the sunlight? But he, the, vine, the vineyard keeper, replied to him, let it alone, sir, just one more year until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit after this, fine. If not, cut it down. Everybody just feel the hug from Jesus because it's there too. But what is he saying? If you don't bear fruit, I have feelings about that. I have opinions about that. It's intense, right? In fact, what this parable is really talking about at that time was Israel and the three years that Jesus was on the earth and he was talking to the people. But I think it has implications for ourselves as well. Why? Because let's go to um, Mark 2, sorry, Mark 11. Um, this is Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. So this is the Palm Sunday story. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, or he's riding on the donkey. And um, you guys may know this story, but we're going to see another parallel to a fig tree. I think these are connected. There was no fig tree in the parable. It was a parable. It's a story. He made it up. So it makes me wonder if, there's, if there was a connection happening in him when he shared these two things. So Mark 11, 12 through 14, as they're walking into Jerusalem, he says, On the next day when they had left Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if, it would have, if he would find anything on it. But he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening to what he said. A couple days later, they go back by this tree, and the tree had withered up from the roots, and it was dead. Jesus had cast a curse, you know, a judgment on this tree, and it died. What was the judgment about? The lack of fruit. I mean, I think this is a great story to show that Jesus got hangry, right? But there's also some implication for us here. <laughs> I would just love, that's one of those moments, I'm like, show me the real when I get to heaven, God, when he's like riding on this donkey that's never had anybody ride on it before, which means it's probably pretty awkward, and he's like so hungry, and he's like, are you kidding me? You're never going to bear fruit. Anyways, that's how I picture it. It's probably not how it happened, but just lightening the mood for a moment. Here we go. John 15, verses 1 through 8. You guys know this, but I'm going to read it again to you anyway. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that continues to bear fruit, he repeatedly prunes, so that it will bear even more fruit, even richer and finer fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have given to you, the teachings which I have discussed with you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself without remaining in the vine, neither can you bear fruit producing evidence of your faith unless you remain in me. Now let's stop here and say this is what he's talking about when he says discipleship. The crowd cannot bear fruit because they're not in him. 
Maybe through salvation they would be, but that connection, he's saying, you and I are united. We are abiding together. And it's from that place that fruit bears. And that cannot happen unless we are having this intimate connection. Verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For otherwise, apart from me, that is, cut off from vital union with me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a broken off branch and withers and dies. And they gather such branches and throw them into the fire like, hello, Jesus, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, that is, if we are vitally united and my message lives in your heart, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified and honored by this when you bear much fruit and prove yourselves to be my true disciples. I'm not suggesting that if you're not bearing fruit, God's going to kill you, right? I'm not. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say, and I don't think Jesus is trying to say this extreme thing. But when you take it back to this parable, I think what the Lord is saying is your fruitfulness truly matters to him. And he's coming and he checks on you. And that's an uncomfortable thing for us to think about at times, right? Um, There's a verse in Revelations where it talks about an angel that has been given a measuring rod that comes to the earth and holds it against people. Like, this is not comfortable. (laughs) This is an awkward thing to think about. But I love you guys so much, and I think the Lord loves you so much that he wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to bear fruit. Your life cannot be complete unless you're bearing fruit. You cannot fulfill your purpose unless you're bearing fruit. I'm not going to tell you what type of fruit you're supposed to bear. That's between you and the Lord. I'm going to tell you there should be something sprouting on you. And if there's not, then I need you to ask yourself why. If it's been three years, something is wrong. If it's been three months, there might be something that's just going on in you, you know, like you need to just adjust something or you might just be in a difficult season. But if it's been a long time, this matters to the Lord. It really matters to him. So I know this is heavy. I get that. I really do. And and honestly, what I feel like the Lord is inviting us into is just an awareness thing, like I said at the beginning. It's a matter of saying, where am I really? Am I in the crowd, but I think I'm a disciple? Well, that could explain why some things aren't working in your life. (laughs) Am I a disciple, but I've decided I don't like to be a disciple, and I'm thinking about going back to being a follower? You know, that happens too, right? I've been processing with the Lord lately, and just that understanding that the, the narrow road that we're called to walk on is really winding, right? It takes us down these paths where we cannot see what's coming next, and it is very hard. And I just want to say to you, going back to the kingdom church versus like American church culture, I think one of the things that grieves my heart the most about the state of our church as a nation right now is that somehow we have given this message that when you get saved, everything is all hunky-dory. Somehow we've given this message that once you're saved, everything is great. And I think that's why pastors and leaders don't want to talk about their problems because they're afraid that it might make you question whether you want to be saved. But listen, I'm just going to tell you, every single one of us finds satisfaction in Jesus alone. It does not exist outside of that. You can listen to every motivational speaker tell you, just keep doing it, just keep calling it out, whatever. It won't work unless you're united with Jesus. That's what he's saying here in John 15. If I'm in you and you're in me, then we will bear fruit. And if anybody is not in me, there is no fruit. When we stand before God, my hope is that you hear that well done, good and faithful servant. And I hope that you hear that because you were able to sit with the Lord and say, God, what is on my assignment plate today? 
it's not going to look like what's on mine. You know, I could list those five things for you, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want any one of you feeling like that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's my assignment. That's what the Lord was telling me. I called you to this. You know, and there's a difference when you're a leader as a disciple than when you're a disciple, right? All of, there's so many nuance in this, and that's on God to sort that out with you, and I fully trust that. But my question to you is, where are you in that process? And my invitation to you is, if you are a disciple, if you've said, yes, I've said that before, Lord, but I'm struggling, then today is your day to re-up that commitment. To go, Lord, you know what? I just need to call it into the light and say, this has been really hard. This cost was a lot higher than I expected, but you're worth it. And if you're in the crowd and you're sitting there saying, you know, this is where I'm at, then my question to you would be, what are you waiting for? There is no water that satisfies apart from him. And if you're in the follower place, my question to you is, what's holding you back? What is that wrestle? You know, there is grace for you in this season. I just don't want to make that um, sound like you don't have to deal with it. The grace is not denial. It's empowering you to actually look at this and say, where am I at? So what we're going to do to end here, I'm just going to open the front up. We're going to turn the lights down. And I really just want to ask you guys to just have a moment with the Lord and say, God, this is where I'm at. And what I want to do is um, I'm going to pray for all of you. And um, if you need to come up here and get on your face and surrender to the Lord, then you need to do that. And if you need to repent, you need to do that. I don't know what the Lord is burning on your heart, but I know the Lord has fire in his eyes today. And that's okay. That's a good thing, right? We want to see both sides of you, Jesus. We want you to be as free to us as we get to be before you, right? And sometimes that's a little bit, um, it's a lot to take in. So Holy Spirit, I just pray over every person in this room right now that they would feel the fire of your love in them. Lord, we pray against every place of striving. We pray against every place of feeling compelled to make a decision because of some sort of external thing. Lord, that there would be a passion. I just release a passion to burn within your heart, to beckon you closer to the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace and the one who truly satisfies you. And so right now, Lord, we call up right now in the name of Jesus. I call up every distractor. I call up every idea. I call up every place where the world feels good, where it feels empowering, where sins of the flesh feel worthwhile. Lord, we call that up and we bring it under your lordship right now in Jesus' name. And I just ask you to burn that up in us, God, to burn up our desire to stray from you right now in Jesus' name. And Lord, would you deal with our hearts with compassion as I know you will? Would you deal with our hearts with love and your empowering grace in Jesus' name? And so I'm just going to invite you, if you feel like the Lord is stirring something in you, just come on up and take some time with the Lord. And we're not going to put an ending on this. So when you feel like you've dealt with what God wants you to deal with, you are free to go. But don't miss this moment. I do believe the Lord is opening an opportunity for you to encounter him, to hear him in a greater way. So if you need to come up to the front, do that. If you need to deal with him where you are, do that. We love you guys.